Chapter Twenty Nine of the Queen of Appalachia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada. The Queen of Appalachia by Joe H. Borders. Chapter Twenty Nine. Paul Thornton, the Millionaire. The reputation of Paul Thornton has suffered greatly during the past few weeks, and his return was a signal for the tongues of scandal to renew their wagging. The incident at the bank, however, was paralyzing. The news of his sudden return and the sensational coup d'état was heralded, broadcast, and by the second morning, the story had reached every ear in Princeton and was rapidly flying up the valley. And over the hills of the surrounding country. It has been said that money is the root of all evil. In this instance, the old saying was given a black eye, since money served as a cure for the town tattlers, who had so generously contributed their time towards tearing down the reputation of one of their townsmen, were now equally active in building it up. And the only explanation which served them was the appearance of the party in question, flush with money. It was current talk in Princeton that Paul returned home a millionaire, a fact that neither Paul nor his parents could deny. An uncle had died suddenly, leaving a vast fortune, so the story ran, and the young ladies whom Paul was reported to have been unduly intimate. Was none other than his co-heirs to this immense fortune, a very plausible story, which could not have been improved upon. When asked about it, Paul merely told his friends that the people had been very generous in attending to his private, as well as business affairs, and had been so successful he would allow them to continue without his advice or assistance, and they received no satisfactory explanations from him. The report, however, soon became a settled fact, and Paul was fully reinstated without an effort on his part. To his parents, Paul told everything. He gave them a detailed statement of all the circumstances leading up to the wonderful adventures, including his early correspondence with May, his New York experience, his turning a new leaf, and his association with Brownlee, his spiritual awakening. And second birth, Miss Arnold's visit, the rescue of the Queen, and the incidents following, and the invasion of the unknown cave with its people and its wealth of beauty and minerals, it was dramatic, and his audience was greatly interested. So filled with surprise and interest were his parents that they sat in silence and applauded only by smiles and pleasing expressions. As the speaker unfolded the wonderful story, he was overwhelmed with questions following his brief recital, and by the time they retired for the night, his happy father and mother were in possession of the facts that would have astonished the world, and have created the greatest sensation of modern times. The same evening that Paul was entertaining his parents with his thrilling adventures. May Temple was pouring a similar story into the ears of a delighted audience in a New Jersey town. May and Angelina made their debut into the former's hometown 
with all the sensational features that attended Paul's arrival in Princeton. May's prolonged absence was as much of a mystery to her parents as it was to her neighbors, and they were beginning to be alarmed at her silence. She had written them of her intended trip into the mountains and had emphasized the fact that she would be out of reach of postal facilities for a time, and not to worry. But as time sped on and no tidings from her were received, it is no wonder they became apprehensive and restless. It was with happy hearts and gladsome feelings, therefore, that they greeted May's arrival, having been advised of her coming by a telegram early in the morning, and she was given a royal reception. Angelina was not overlooked on this happy occasion, and was made to feel that she was equally welcome to the Quentin and to their hearts. Before the end of the week, the two young ladies had visited New York, and Angelina was introduced to her friends as Queen Angelina of Appalachia and was regarded as an important personage. The Sovereign of Appalachia, a practically unknown Iceland, as the newspaper put it, and her appearance in the metropolis was given an enthusiastic launch by the enchanted reporters who called upon her all of which go to show how easy it is for a foreigner with a title to take us by a storm. Busy Americans do not take time to investigate titles. They merely smile, look wise, bend the knee, join the chorus, and pass on. Angelina was every inch a queen in appearance and manner, and as a matter of fact had occupied a throne and was the ruler of a country that had but few equals. She was not a fake, and her visit to America was not as a fortune hunter, for she was a millionaire many times over in her own right. Hence May violated no social nor moral law in introducing her as a sovereign. No one, not even May's most intimate friends, questioned the rank of her honored guest, whose costumes were dreams of beauty and whose jewels that flashed so brilliantly represented untold riches. But all looked upon May with added pressure that she had introduced the crowning social belle of the season into Gotham's society. Angelina loved homage and flattery. She had been raised in luxury. Her whole life had been one round of pleasure, with the possible exception of the few memorable days so well known to the reader. She had been worshipped from her infancy. To be the recipient of adoration and praise, therefore, was to her an ordinary conventionality and an expected pleasure. Consequently, she wore her honors with becoming taste and as a natural inheritance. No sign of regret so far escaped the Appalachia Queen for her visit to America, and that her visit ended happily will be shown later on. When Paul left May and the ex-queen after a promise to make them an early visit, he took the train for the city, where he deposited his Appalachian gold and other valuables, opening an account with the Lafayette National Bank, the city depository of his home bank. Not dreaming of the chaos of the business affairs of Thornton and Son, he could not give his lady friends a definite date for his visit thinking he would have to give a few weeks' time to home affairs, 
But now he was free from such cares and was confronted with the fact that he was longing to get away. He had written Brownlee, and that delighted personage asked him to run up for a day or two. The reply was brief but urgent, and knowing his old charm was entitled to a visit and an accounting, he arranged his affairs to that end, requesting his mother to be the first to acquaint Mrs. Overton of the facts, should she arrive before his return, and to write him at Quentin immediately. Then you will not return soon, she asked, a merry twinkle in her eyes. Next week, perhaps. I presume you will give us warning of any real important happening? Oh, we haven't gone so far as that, replied he, surmising her meaning. But don't forget to see the widow. I want to arrange for a surprise. Oh, she understood him. I will see her the moment she returns. Paul, you look as happy as I feel. God bless you, my boy. Bye-bye, mother. Tell dad I will have the goods sent out from New York the first of the week. Won't he be delighted? Yes, replied he. Father will never be really happy until the old store is running again as in the old days. Well, I want to make him happy. And if one of the biggest and handsomest lot of goods ever seen in this country will do it, he shall have it. Bye. There goes the best boy that ever lived, was her motherly comment as she watched him go down the walk. End of chapter 29 Paul Thornton, the Millionaire Recorded by Kualada